American Single Malt represents one of the greatest opportunities for craft distilleries to matter and grow. To, to me, one of the best things that could happen in the world of whiskey, especially here in America, is to see a lot more players in the game. It's been traditionally dominated uh, by a lot of the same old distilleries for over 100 years now, uh, but I, I like variants and varieties and options, and um, that's what these craft distilleries represent to me, is a lot more to explore and a lot more options. And single malt, to me, represents the perfect opportunity to do that because there's no ceiling on how far we can take it because of the lack of uh, established competition and then once again, um, I I want to compete in categories that uh, embrace artistic ability and creative vision. That's why single malt matters and why I'm so excited about the opportunity that American single malt whiskey brings. He had these tasting notes and I tried to find it because I actually wanted to read the tasting notes to you. Uh, Cause it was just such a load of bullshit, and you can always tell when it's because it's like it's it's the flavors of the Amazon basin, and you can taste the llamas and the dung heaps of. It's like no, dude. Hints of tropical fruit baked on the top of a volcano. Really? Come on, man. Welcome back to Single Malt Matters, the American Single Malt Whiskey Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Drew, back again for another conversation with one of the people playing an important role in helping to shape the American Single Malt Whiskey tradition. And you know what? We've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's just jump right into this week's episode. This week, Murphy Quint from Cedar Ridge Distillery in, uh, now are you in Cedar Rapids? Uh, just outside of Cedar Rapids in Swisher, Iowa. We, we actually started out in Cedar Rapids, but we're currently located in the small town of Swisher. So one of the things uh, with this episode, uh, I, I want to take things in, in kind of a different direction, in a totally different direction. And I don't want to ask you the same stuff that everybody else always asks you, right? <laughs> so, um, and, and I know a little bit about the background of, of the distillery. So just really quick, from what I remember, the distillery started in Cedar Ridge. You were in a tiny space. Uh, you guys were just getting going more uh, uh, focused on wine at the time, right? And then maybe doing some brandy, that type of stuff. And then you got just lambasted with floods. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah, we. Uh, it was in 2008. Just got uh, nailed by the flood of 2008, which devastated devastated downtown Cedar Rapids and uh, basically just devastated our entire business. Uh, our fermenters got knocked over barrels. Uh, just basically everything we had was was ruined, and it forced us to restart. Um, and when we did so, we decided not to open that small room you just referred to. We decided not to open that back up and instead build new um, out in Swisher, Iowa, where our vineyards already were planted. And we happened to uh, build right on top of a hill that can't be flooded. So, <laughs> yeah. And so this this is a family business. This is a family distillery. It's a family brand. And your dad actually made the very wise decision at the time to fill the still with water so that it wouldn't lift up and, and separate and basically like destroy itself, right? Um, that, that's exactly right. So, I mean, we were we were getting ready to basically abandon ship. Um, we, you know, uh, the employees that we had at the time and stuff, we, we did everything we could to kind of... Uh, salvage what we could and get stuff out of the building as fastly as fast as we could but obviously um most most of the stuff was too heavy and could not be saved but literally right before we shut the door the last thing that happened was my dad filled up our only still at that point in time with water so that it, it wouldn't as you said 
pick up, float away, and, and uh, get all banged up. It probably kept us in business because obviously a, a still is just a, a a very expensive piece of equipment, and we were very small at that point in time. That's <laughs> yeah, not a minor thing. No, no. I mean, usually that's that's your greatest <laughs> expense when you're starting out. And so, um, had that had that been banged up, who knows if we would even um, kind of done Cedar Ridge Part Two. So then, so you pick up, you move the distillery to your current location, and that's where things start to build. You start to grow. Uh, you start expanding what you're doing and that's the history okay so now (laughs) so moving forward from there um yeah so so uh, first of all um how young a buck are you Uh, i'm 32 pretty fresh 32 years old and you got started this and this is part of the reason why i want to talk about about you specifically and i'm super excited to talk about you because when you got in to the business and you started working for the distillery you were what a teenager um, yeah, yeah. So it kind of depends when you when you would count us as opening up. Because um, in 2005 we opened our doors, and back then I, I would have been uh, right around right around 16 years old, um, 16, 17, somewhere in there. But in 2002, 2003, we're planting vineyards, and you know I, I was a part of that as well after school and on the weekends and stuff. So I was even even younger at that point in time. So yeah, um, I, I was a. Uh, uh, a teenager, absolutely, and and you know when we got started out, uh, for full transparency, I mean it, it was very much just a job for me. I was I was looking for a way to bring in some extra bucks and and have money to pay off my car and hang out with friends and stuff like that. Uh, but as time went on, obviously I got uh, I got a lot more passionate and 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 just kind of a little bit more uh, obsessed, if you will, about this industry. So when how old were you when you started? like critically tasting whiskey, not just drinking whiskey, but actually uh, like nosing it, talking about like flavor, talking about like palate, sensory evaluation. What um, age were you? Yeah, yeah, um, great great question. And uh, um, to be honest, more of that would have, it would have started out with wine and that some of the people that I work with now will think that's really weird because uh, I'm, I'm very much a whiskey person and my wine education isn't great these days. Um, but when we started out, we were a wine focused business. And I mean, early on, uh, maybe 17, 18, 19, um, I got used to, you know, we would produce a wine and I would get used to coming up with the notes and uh, describing it to our customers. So, I mean, around that age, I, I got kind of um, I got decent at doing that, um, and then it wasn't until I mean my my early twenties that uh, I really really got into that in the world of whiskey, and that actually happened uh, when I was at a different distillery um, called Stranahan's Colorado Whiskey. So for for a while there, I, I kind of you know I obviously started out at Cedar Ridge, but um, as as many young people do, I was kind of looking for an opportunity to be a little bit more independent and kind of fully become myself. And one of the best ways you can do that, in my opinion, is to uh, move away from your your safety blanket, which is a lot of times, you know, your parents and, and basically just your comfort zone. And uh, my girlfriend at the time, wife now, we basically just showed up in Colorado, uh, no apartment, no job, and just built from scratch. And I, I uh, called Stranahan's repeatedly for a couple months until they finally hired me. And uh, it was at that job where I, I <laughs> um, it was at that job where I fell in love with whiskey, um, the process, the product, uh, and, and maybe even more so than any of it, the people. Uh, the the people in this industry are are you know they're they're amazing, uh, second to none. And so I, I really just fell in love with the entire game from start to finish when I was out there in Colorado. And so when you went to work for Stranahan's, what did they have you doing initially? And how long were you there? 
How did how did your experience at Stranahan's kind of evolve? Um, yeah, great question. So when I started out, I started out as a, a brewer or a masher there, whatever you want to call it. Um, they have two teams basically on their production. Um, there's the, the mashers and the fermenters, and then there's the distillers, or at least you know I can't speak for how things are there today. But when I was there, that's the way um, it was operated. And you know, considering that I I d- hadn't done much mashing before I went there. I, I had done a lot of distillation and mainly rectifying vodka and stuff like that. Um, I figured they would put me on a still, but uh, I guess they needed someone in mashing at that point in time. And that ended up being um, one of the best things that could ever happen to me. Because one, I, I got to learn an entirely new skill. But two, that's where I really, really fell in love with from scratch whiskey production. And so they uh, um, they brought me on as a, like I said, a brewer. And uh, I, I did that for about a year and a half and I um, the first year there I I won um, an employee of the year award and that that was a game changer for me personally I'm a big big momentum guy and that kind of uh, that got me fueled up to keep going in this industry and, and take it even more seriously and fall in love with it even further and uh, anyway as time went on I did get uh, promoted to a packaging manager there and uh, that that was a once again a big motivation builder motivation boost for me and a huge compliment to to get that position but that's also where I, I realized that you know I am very very passionate about making whiskey and bottling whiskey isn't quite the same thing you know it, it's uh, very repetitive and uh, it's uh, it's 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 still a great great skill to learn how to manage that part of the operation um, I, I learned a lot from doing it but you know it just doesn't doesn't appeal to the heart the same way that mashing or distillation does so anyway yeah that, that was kind of my, my time there and I I, <clears throat> I should mentioned had the opportunity while I was there to work under some of the um, some of the all-time greats uh, the guy who hired me was a guy named Pete Macca um, who, who is still there today and um, I believe he was the general manager there and he um, as someone who now manages uh, the you know the distillery operations uh, I have a whole new appreciation for him and, and how well he did that because I, I'm, I'm trying to run a very efficient operation these days and I realize how incredibly difficult that is so you know uh, the further the further I get into that side of things the more appreciation I have for him and how he did it and then uh, most importantly I worked under Rob Dietrich who um, completely you know just uh, completely got me fired up to to be the best that I can possibly be in this industry Um, he was a really really talented distiller um, as well as blender he's doing some big stuff at at Blacken these days and um, and yeah, he taught me a lot about management and how to have fun while you're doing it and how to how to be a good person in general. So yeah, the people that I work with out there, once again, uh, had, a, had a great impact on me. And uh, I hope one day to have impact, have an impact on other people the way that they had one on me. So if you were to look back and think about your time at Stranahan's and how long were you there again? All in. Uh, only, only uh, it would have been three to four years, three and a half years. It was a quick, quick stint. So, uh, so while you were more on the production end before you got into the packaging side of it, is, is there anything? Were there any revelations you had? Anything that you learned specific to, um, uh, like grain quality or technique or ingredients? Like, is there any anything that you would consider you had a revelation that you've taken from that and been able to apply to what you're doing at Cedar Ridge? Um, oh, oh yeah, I mean, in, in small ways and in big ways, um, you know, I mean, l- like I said originally, I mean, I I acquired a whole new skill, which was which was mashing. I didn't have much experience with that, um, but I, I'd say more so than anything, it was it was more of an awakening um, when I was out there. 
you know, obviously I had my family back home in Iowa at Cedar Ridge and I was um, out in Colorado. And when I was there, that's when um, my eyes were kind of open to the opportunity in this industry. I mean, and, and this is still pretty early on in the, in the craft boom, um, you know, uh, early, early 2010s. That's still pretty early on in this game that, that is just still to this day really booming. And anyway, when I was out in Colorado, I saw the the support from locals and how they would absolutely rally behind a local distillery producing whiskey or art, however you want to look at it. Um, they just really rallied behind that. Um, I mean, still to this day for their snowflake release, people will camp out three days in advance to just stand in line and get this product. So, I mean, what, when I saw that, you know, I, I, I definitely was talking back to the people back home about like, guys, um, you know, I know that we were a winery, uh, we're a distiller in the sense that we do a little bit of everything. Some whiskey, yeah, but vodka, gin, rum. I was like, we need, we need to take a look at whiskey and we need to start um, really focusing on on gaining local support because I'm out here in Colorado, which is kind of a trend-setting state in this category, and people are just going nuts over Colorado whiskey, and and we could we could definitely do that back in Iowa. So I, I'd say that 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 was the biggest thing. Um, from like the, the business side of things that I, I really gained from my time at Strand Hands was just being woke up to to um, the opportunity that we faced. And what was the what was the process that brought you back to Iowa? Um, yeah, and that it wasn't um, it had nothing to do with other than um, my girlfriend at the time slash uh, maybe she's my fiance at that point in time um, we were just about to get married and we um, really wanted to start a family we're we're uh, very active involved proud parents of a couple kids these days i mean we we really wanted to have kids and raise them back in the midwest closer to our families obviously my family is from iowa and hers is from the chicago area and um, we knew that that it was going to be difficult to live that life that we wanted to live uh, from a remote location, basically being out in out in Colorado. So we decided that it was time to uh, move back to Iowa. And I, you know, having discovered how much I love this stuff, it was very important for me to to stay involved in uh, not only a distillery, but specifically whiskey. I really wanted to be in whiskey still. And uh, at that point in time, there happened to be an opening at Cedar Ridge in the sales and distribution side of things. So um, that that's kind of that's what led me back home and uh obviously i'm a production guy by background and that's where my heart is but i was really willing to take basically whatever was going to be open that would that would keep me in this game and at that point in time there wasn't an opening in production so i I hopped in sales and distribution back in iowa all right and at the time what was cedar ridge producing and at what point was there a transition into making single malt whiskey Uh, um yeah great question and so um, when I had when I had gotten back to Iowa, um, we were still producing a little bit of everything, and 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 we still to this day uh, do produce a little bit of everything. But um, our focus was still a little bit spread out when I got back in 2014. Um, however, they had been, um, and this, this is completely independent of me. You know, I, like I said earlier, I had been saying, guys, you should take a look at whiskey. Look at whiskey. Well, while I was still out in Colorado, um, my parents. Uh, Jamie Seifkin, our general manager, a couple other employees, they had this aha moment of, uh, 
you know, if whiskey is, is the game, well, a type of whiskey is obviously bourbon whiskey and bourbon, it comes from corn and Iowa happens to produce more corn than basically <laughs> yeah. I forget any other state, but like any other country <laughs> on this planet. And so there, there's obviously this huge opportunity in Iowa corn bourbon. And so they, they had um, kind of got the wheels turning on this and had this thing going by the time I got back. Um, and so anyway, when I got back to Iowa, there, there was quite a bit of Iowa bourbon being produced, but also quite a bit of brandy and rum and all that stuff. Um, and then slowly over time, we transitioned year by year, it seems, to more of a whiskey focus in general. Um, obviously, it's still to this day, we're primarily doing bourbon. That's our flagship. That's uh, that's our, our moneymaker and what, uh, what keeps the lights on at the end of the day. But um, just, I mean... The last couple of years, we we really started selling single malt um, and started mashing it. You know, six, five, six years ago um, on on a serious level. So, anyway, to even you know, if you fast forward today, our product mix is probably. I mean, we're probably putting. 70 to 80 percent of what we put away in barrels is bourbon and then uh the majority of what's left is going to be single malt and a little bit of rye in there but bottom line is you were you were kind of a driving force in getting the single malt program going uh, um yeah i think in in many ways uh i i might have been um i i think my dad is is obviously very involved there as well um the two of us have a, a deep passion for all things single malt his his coming more so from the world of scotch and mine coming from my background working obviously at stranahan's um the, the two of us both have always really loved single malt and what really got me interested in it is just the the world of opportunity that there is an american single malt whiskey uh one there's there's really no ceiling on the level of success that a craft distillery can have in that category, right? Because all the mass producers uh, and the distilleries that have really established themselves in the United States, they're heads down on bourbon and uh, maybe a little bit of rye in there. But I mean, they're they're focused on bourbon, not really single malt. Uh, in addition to that, the scotches have a lot of tariffs going on, and uh, which is advantageous to American distilleries. And then third. Um, I personally feel like there's a lot of room for artistic ability in the world of single malt because you can not only do you have different malts that you can use, you know, you've got you've got peat in there, you've got caramel malt, chocolate malt, etc. Um, you can utilize different oaks in the finishing process. You can utilize different finishing casks. And so there's just a lot more that you can utilize. Uh, basically, there, there's, you know, in terms of art, there's there's you've got different paintbrushes and you've got different colors in the world um, of American single malt that you don't necessarily have and that you can't necessarily utilize in the world of bourbon or rye. So from a creative standpoint, I was really, really excited about the opportunity to dive deep into single malt and it has uh, led us to where we're at today. And how many different expressions have you released? Oh, well, man, uh, a million. And it's kind of, it's kind of <laughs> hard because um, originally we, we started out, I mean, and this was even, even before my time back at Cedar Ridge. Originally, we started releasing single malt as basically a single barrel every time. So it'd be single malt finished in an apple brandy cask and we'd release it. And then single malt finished in a sherry cask and we'd release it. A uh, peated single malt and we'd release it. And well, we, <laughs> um, you know, we were kind of kind of new at that point in time. And uh, we were releasing that basically under the same label every single time. And on site at Cedar Ridge, if people are buying that, that makes sense because customers will come out and you can explain what the product's going to taste like. But what we didn't think of in our early stages was that 
when that bottle goes to a retailer, if the label looks the same every time, but the product is changing in flavor, there's no way to communicate that to the buyers. So um, anyway, early on when we were we were still kind of testing things out, we released uh, several different um, expressions of single malt. And I mean, that, that was the whole strategy, but we quickly learned that there's a, a time and a place for like special releases and there's a strategy to them. But for your your core whiskeys that are gonna be distributed on a larger scale, it kinda it needs to be a consistent product because you have to you have to communicate to the customer what's inside the bottle, obviously. Absolutely. And th- and that's kind of um you know, going back to one of the foundational principles of the podcast is sort of supporting the cause of the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission. And I think the underpinning uh, and the philosophy behind that is to provide some consumer protection, you know, some consumer awareness in terms of knowing when they get a bottle that has the the name and the classification of the spirit on there, what exactly it is, and that it's it is defined, it's federally regulated, and it's not left to interpretation. So that's important. Absolutely, it is. And that that commission's uh, currently doing great things. Um, they're making a lot of progress, and uh, that, that's something I actually want to get a lot more involved with that commission. I've kind of I've got a couple professional goals for this year. One's to get more involved with that commission, and the other is uh, to get more involved with ACSA, which is doing great things in the world of single malt as well. Yeah, um, and I, I am I, I am actually running for the board this year, so I'm all, I'll you know ha- I'll have more on that in the near future. But uh, anyway, I'm trying to get more involved with those those two groups because they are they're really pushing the envelope in the world of, uh, you know, getting leg- legislation passed and getting kind of some rules and regulations uh, put in place or modified or whatever. And uh, I-, I think that that's really great for this category. So yeah, very, very optimistic about the future of American single malt whiskey. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I really like to talk to people who are so passionate about American single malt and who are making this stuff is kind of the decision making process to do it, because even today, it's not it's 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 not going to be a decision that's made on on a business case right because there really is no business case behind american single malt whiskey above and beyond just the fact that you're seeing more of it and it seems to be that there's an opportunity and a place for it in the market but given the lack of the standard of identity and given how much work there's still is that needs to be done in terms of advocacy for the category if you were doing it 10 years ago i mean that that's based that's based on passion that's just because you wanted to (laughs) do something cool new and different that was really kind of uncharted territory right so that's that's why i love talking to guys like you because even though you're you're a young guy what i love about (laughs) you is that you have a long career ahead of you and you are in a position where you started and you kind of cut your teeth on it when you were young and you can now carry it through into the time when it is going to start to become its own thing sort of globally and so that to me is is really cool um yeah yeah and it, it is fun to um to have gotten in on that that early it's something that i'm i'm very proud of um and yeah i i think that you know the world is, is about to really see an american single malt whiskey boom i mean i, I think that there, there are so many craft distillers in the United States now, and in plenty of other countries as well. And many of them are doing single malts um, for the reasons that you just described. I mean, it, it, it's kind of a little bit more out there. And like I said earlier, there's there's a little bit more artistic input in the process. And so a lot of these craft distilleries are working with single malt. Well, that's going to bring a lot of different 
options to the marketplace soon. There's going to be a lot of different varieties of American single malts kind of that all hit the shelves at the same time. And we're just we're on the forefront of that wave right now. But uh, there's only going to be more and more coming down the pipeline. So I think the world uh, is really going to enjoy the number of options that they have in the world of American single malt whiskey. And I know that it, it's very common for people to describe uh like craft spirits on the same on the same level as craft beer to compare those two that that's been done time after time i I, i've never really known about that but i think that american single malt whiskey specifically is very similar to craft beer in the sense that there's so many different varieties there's so many different malts you know there's so many different casks to finish it in that it creates categories within categories and uh, especially the younger people out there these days they really like to get out there and explore those categories and find new flavor profiles um and so that that's one one thing that has me really optimistic about this category is just the room to explore within it i mean like i said there's subcategories there i mean a subcategory of single malt has peat in it and only a small fraction of single malts even have peat but you can explore that category and then you can move on to the next thing and it's like you can you can try a new single malt every single day and uh there's there's always something to explore in that category yeah and that and that's you know you look at scotch and they use one of two malts or both and that's it and that's one of the things that i love about american single malt is that there's such huge potential in terms of the range of flavors and expressions that you can get out of this because we don't have any tradition to follow we don't have any 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 uh sort of dogmatic principles saying well you must use this product here and that is what you must use you know i mean so there's there's a huge potential in terms of creativity absolutely and you know and and that's always kind of a, a difficult subject because like the the framework the rules the red the the regulations of it all um it, it can be very good like for instance in bourbon um it's kind of fun in the sense that you know it's got to be a minimum of 51 percent corn it's got to be a new barrel every time it's got to be american oak it's got to be made in the united states well so everyone's got to follow the exact same rules now get out there and see who can make the best product following you know w- within that framework i mean that, that is kind of a neat concept um but unlike the the craft side of things the artistic side of things that's what makes uh single malt really neat is that it's just a little bit looser um and and part of that's because the category hasn't really been defined or developed yet but there's just more room to get out there and and kind of push the limits and and try something new than there is in other american whiskey categories it's just a cool damn time to be doing this thing right now (laughs) it's awesome and and it's cool that we got guys like you doing it there's never been a better time that's for sure yeah for sure all right so (laughs) i'm i'm i am gonna break uh, one of my own rules <laughs> right now. Well, I'm going to I'm going to kind of break it. I'm not totally going to break it. Uh, and that is that I'm going to talk about a bourbon. <laughs> and and the reason I'm going to talk about the bourbon is is and, and the other thing, too, is I don't I, you know, in this in this interview, I don't want to ask you the same stuff that, you know, everybody always asks you whenever you do uh, an interview, uh, with the exception of this one thing. Uh, and that is your connection to Slipknot and you know I don't I don't want to get into sort of the specifics of like mash bills or production or or anything like that but music is a very important aspect of this podcast and it's something that's very important to me and so whenever I talk to a distillery or a distiller or someone who has a direct link to music I love to explore that so tell me a little bit more about about your relationship with Slipknot, how how did that get initiated, and and what are you doing with them? Um, yeah, yeah, and it, it's it's obviously been a ton of fun working with the band. Um, you know, 
they uh when Slipknot decided that they wanted to put a whiskey together, they obviously could have gone to any distillery on this planet to do so. I mean, they've they've got a global presence. Um, they've got fans. They've got fans in Japan, and I mean, you know, they've got fans everywhere. So, um, they, they they're basically a household name, and uh, it wouldn't have been hard for them to go to the biggest distillery that they can possibly find to uh, put a whiskey out. But they obviously um, came knocking on our door to see if it's something that we could team up and uh, and put out together. And I I think that that alone says a lot about who the band is and what they stand for. Um, for those who don't know, they're they are based out of Iowa. I'm I'm pretty sure every single member in the band is from Iowa originally. Um, I could be wrong on that, but obviously um, a very strong presence in the state of Iowa and, and a background here. And the fact that they wanted to team up with an Iowan distillery to put out an Iowa whiskey together that that you know that that really touched me. I think that that's really cool. Um, like I said, it shows who they are and what they stand for. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. So the the hard part of that project, you know, was making a whiskey that matches the band's personality because um, we haven't really talked about this yet, but the style of whiskey that we try to produce at Cedar Ridge is an approach, approachable style whiskey. Um, we still want in, we still want our whiskeys to be complex and we want there to be a lot of flavor and room for exploration and stuff, but we're not going for very aggressive uh, on, on the palate. We're going for a soft, easy sipping whiskey. And well, um, Slipknot as a band, you know, I mean, they're they're a very bold band. Um, you know, for anyone who for some reason doesn't know who they are, they they <laughs> um, you know they they wear masks on stage. And they um, they go bananas up there. They put on a hell of a show. It's awesome. Um, so I needed to find a way to make the whiskey that we're producing for them match up with their personalities and just their their band in general. So we it was kind of difficult to switch gears and uh, and put out something that was a little bit bolder, a little bit more aggressive, a little bit louder. And um, one way we did that was actually by doing uh, a blend of our Cedar Ridge bourbon and our Cedar Ridge rye to produce it. Um, you know, our, our bourbon is going to be softer and sweeter, but our rye kind of spices spices things up as a rye typically does. And so the rye the rye in there uh, blending with that bourbon kind of made it a little bit bolder and a little bit louder. So technically, um, I guess technically it wouldn't be a bourbon. It's a it's a blended straight because it's two two whiskeys blended together post production. Um, and anyway, yeah. Uh, I will say that the the band Clown, um, Sean, he goes by Clown in the band, um, he had a lot to do with putting that 60-40% uh, blend together, 60% bourbon, 40% rye. We tasted through a number of different samples from a number of different barrels, and he came up with the final blend himself. So, I mean, he was very, very involved with the process. And yeah, it, it's, uh, like I said, it's been a complete game changer for um, our distillery to be associated with, with a brand and a band of that that caliber um and it, it completely altered the trajectory that we're on that's for sure and how long have you been doing that one uh so this has been going on um not not even quite two years now i think uh, about a year and a half exactly um m- maybe two years ago is when they initially reached out and i mean pretty quickly uh, i mean we moved forward on this real quickly and and about three to four months after we even had our initial sit down i mean we were we were putting product out on the shelf so it's uh, a little bit less than than two years in the making now awesome Man, that's such a cool story. And, you know, we're starting to see a little bit more of that. So that's cool. I know, like, Matthew McConaughey has his. Bob Dylan has his. Um, So, yeah, I love that kind of stuff because, I mean, music and whiskey are just 
Man, they're a great combination. And but to your point, man, you got to have the right whiskey when you're listening to that music. You know, it's, and when you're listening to Slipknot and you're drinking whiskey, it's going to need to be aggressive. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, exactly. You know, it, it can't be something that's too soft and gentle. And um, yeah, it. Uh, yeah, like I said, it's been a ton of fun working with those guys. Ton of fun. Awesome. So, um, you know, I don't want to get too technical into uh, into anything that that you're doing, but can you give me sort of an overview of uh, your your grain, your mash bill, your different malt types that you use, uh, where you get the grain from? I mean, just basically all things grain. Um, yeah, and I, and I imagine we'll um, we'll stay focused on single malt. Um, you know, I, I always have to mention um, in our in our bourbon we do we do grow the corn ourselves on our family farm in Winthrop, Iowa. Uh, my grandpa Melvin has been farming oh, cool. uh, since he was like I don't know 16, 17 years old, and um so he, he does grow our corn for us um, that we use in our, our bourbon, our rye, as well as the the Slipknot blends, obviously. But um, staying focused in the world of single malt, uh, we do source that grain. Iowa is not exactly the the powerhouse in barley production that it is in, in corn production, so um, we we source that, and we actually uh, have partnered up with. Well, what was formerly Cargill, and I believe now is Bort Malt, um, and uh, they they yep. supply our uh, our two row barley for us, and ours specifically comes out of the Prairie Malt facility up in Saskatchewan, which we had the pleasure of going up and <clears throat> actually doing a visit with those guys and seeing how they they malt it themselves and and, and just seeing their large scale operation, which was uh, it was really eye opening to see. I had never seen a malting facility on that scale before, so that was neat. But um, yeah, yeah, we do a. a 100% malted barley, two-row barley mash. Um, you know, as for distillation, obviously distilled twice. So none, none of the magic uh, that, that in, in my opinion, I guess, none of the magic that really makes our single malt what it is happens on that end. Obviously, um, that that's the base that we're working with. But to me, uh, where it really gets special is in the process of cask finishing. And uh, we can definitely get into that. Um, so... As I mentioned early on, uh, Cedar Ridge is both a winery and distillery. Um, and in addition to making whiskey in our distillery, we also produce brandy, rum, uh, a number of other things. Well, one advantage that we have is we have all these used barrels at our disposal that we can finish our single malt in. So we'll start all of our single malt out in aging in a, a standard American oak whiskey cask for the first two to three years. Um, and then after that first two to three years, we go to transfer it to something else. And that's where we transfer it into a unique finishing cask, which a lot of, a t- a lot of the time is one of our own barrels from uh, our winery, say X red wine. Um, at times we've even done some X, X white wine, some X port. Um, or we'll we'll throw in an X grape brandy, X apple brandy, X pear brandy, um, or we'll uh, even do some unique malts or some sorry some unique uh, uh, oaks that we'll actually source from other areas like uh, um, Spanish oak. We re- recently got a bunch of uh, sherry casks from over in Spain. Um, we. Uh, have done Hungarian oak, French oak, obviously American oak. So basically, we put down a ton of different types of single malt. I mentioned that a little bit earlier that we produce just a large variety of different styles of single malt. And it finishes out in these casks for another two to three years. And once we deem it ready, we actually taste every single barrel before we do the next step here. Once we deem that the whiskey is ready, we will strategically add it into what we call our Solera vat, which is basically a bulk tank. 
that we never empty. Um, we will only bottle it halfway down and then we'll fill it up just like I just described. Bottle it halfway down and fill it back up so that this whiskey inside this Solera is constantly evolving in flavor profile um, and it's constantly gaining age. The, the mother batch is always somewhat present because we never empty it. So um, it, in addition to being um, a ton of fun, it's, it's like the most fun thing that we do is actually make all these different barrels and, and, and fill up this vat. Uh, it's also incredibly uh, artistic and high stakes because uh, I, I always say that, you know, if we end up putting the wrong barrels in the Solera vat that have off flavors of in, in them somehow, it's going to throw the balance of this single malt off for the foreseeable future. Because like I said, we never empty this vat. So if we, if we mess it up, <laughs> the only way, the only way to recover is to basically bottle and add more bottle, add more, and eventually dilute something out. So we take that process very seriously. Um, we we feel that we've we've uh, done it the right way the, the whole time, and we haven't added those off notes that I talked about yet. So um, hopefully we can we can continue that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the way that we we get that thing filled up is we um, line up about ten barrels at a time on our distillery floor, and then our production team will actually taste through each and every single one of them. And we'll also taste the whiskey that's already in our Solera vat, and we'll determine which which of those whiskeys pair best together. So, um, a ton ton of art um, going into what what is technically a marriage of single malts or a blend, if you want to call that. But yeah, there, there's um, a, a ton of skill on that side of things that I, I feel is, is oftentimes overlooked and underappreciated. And I, I want to talk a little bit more uh, about that, and and specifically blending, um, because that's something that frankly is kind of the unsung hero of not just single malt, but all whiskey. And it's something that the average person doesn't really think about. And and it's not as simple as you know empty a barrel, uh, put some water in there, get it down to 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 bottle proof, or if you want to keep it barrel proof, you know whatever. Um, and then put it out there, slap a label on it. It doesn't work that way. And it takes people tasting and blending and perfecting and making the decision to that, no, this these barrels are not ready yet. Put them back, give them another six months, give them another year, whatever. Um, and so that's something that really fascinates me. And I would love to talk more about that. Who's your blending team? How does that process work? Do you have any specific tools you use for for flavor mapping and and uh, ultimately, who's got the final say? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So a, a lot of good stuff there. It it um it truly is is one of the most important parts of the process is the blending. And for some reason, um, I, I think that a lot of people on, on the consumer end get very caught up in the, the distillation and maybe even <clears throat> um, the mashing of the whiskey. And I, I think that's very obvious why. I mean, it, it's a very cool part of the process. It's cool to look at the equipment. It's cool to watch it all happen. Um, but at the end of the day, the what's going to determine whether your whiskey is good or not, if, if it's a, a batch at least, is... Uh, how how multiple barrels paired together to create a final product. So I mean that 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 can't be overlooked because it, it's truly the most important part, especially when it comes down to the process I just described of, of our single malt and having so many different varieties. Um, the, the rest of the the process is kind of small potatoes to to that specific part, uh, just because it's such a complex uh, process. But anyway, um, as as far as how we do it, um, I, I will say that there, there are a couple things um, as, as the head distiller and director of operations <clears throat> that I, I try to make sure I get to do. Um, it, be, becoming a head distiller, it, it sounds awesome, but you kind of end up getting more and more 
and further and further away from actually <laughs> getting your hands dirty, and you spend a little bit more time um, behind a computer and in an office, uh, which has a lot of pros and cons to it. But um, there are a couple things that I try to make sure that I actually do have full control over. Um, and one one is being the Slipknot blend, just because that's a, a partnership with the band Slipknot, and uh, I want to make sure <clears throat> that we're watching that as closely as possible. And then two is our single malt, and that's because one, I'm just incredibly passionate about that category, and two, we've just launched a new single malt that we need to take very seriously. So um, we, we do all try it as a team. Um, the, the entire production team, which we've got now eight people, including myself, or not including myself, on our production team, and we will taste through all those barrels. We'll all kind of present our notes and our assessments on the aroma, the flavor profile, all that. Um, we'll kind of discuss it as a team, what, which ones we think would pair best together and create the best overall batch. But when it comes down to it, um, I... I will be the one who actually transfers those barrels into the Solera vat. Um, you know, I'll, I'll kind of make the final decision, but it's it's a it's very important to me that that I hear from the team on that because we have a lot of very skilled people. Uh, if they weren't skilled, they they wouldn't be on the team, and uh, it, it would be silly to think that. Uh, you know that one person should be making all all those decisions. We we want to pick on everyone's expertise, and we want to uh, make sure that everyone can contribute to that process. Awesome. Now I've got your latest release, uh, batch number one of the quintessential signature blend, and uh, the first thing that that really comes across to me, and I just took the wrapper off. I haven't even popped the cork on this yet. Man, this is a gorgeous bottle. Uh, this is not. This is very classic looking. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the design component uh, and the labeling. Yeah, yeah, and, and thank you for that compliment. That means that means a lot to us. Um, our, our marketing department um, and, and the people on, on the brand side of things worked very, very <clears throat> hard to to get that right. And uh, and I, I also feel like they did a great job, so props to them. But um, yeah, so, you know, our, our typical labels um, kind of follow the American style whiskey format. Um, and if you if you look at not just at Cedar Ridge, but at most American whiskeys, the typical style is to have the brand name in very big bold letters so that uh, if it's on a, on a bar shelf in an on-premise location, you can you can read the brand name on the bottle from 40, 50 feet away. So uh, in America, we tried to get the brand name to be very big and to really pop on that label. Well, over in Scotland, um, it's very different. Their labels, uh, they're... They're not as big and as bold on the brand side of things. Um, they, at times, you, you could probably argue that they might have a little bit more of an elegant touch to them, and they're, they tend to fit more language on the bottles than uh, traditional American whiskeys. One, one example that I always think of is Balvini. They do a great job of having their brand name present, but also describing what's in the bottle and uh, and having a nice flow to their label. So um, that's kind of the difference between an American style and a, um, a Scotland style label. And well, uh, Considering this is an American single malt, that kind of that kind of falls between those two categories. Uh, this is an American product, and we want people here to know that. But at the same time, we we have found it, and maybe and maybe you can weigh on this because I know that you've got a lot to say on this category as well. But uh, we found that the American consumer so far has had, you know, has had maybe a little bit trouble picking up on what exactly American single malt is, and we figure that if we can dress this product up maybe a little bit more like a scotch, it might be a little bit more obvious to consumers that this is gonna drink uh, more along that style of things. It's, it's gonna be less of a classic American um, new charred oak taste, and it's gonna be more of a, uh, 
kind of a complex single malt that you might normally find in the world of Scotland. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and it, the the bottle. That's kind of the first thing I looked uh, I looked at, and I thought about when I pulled it out of the box. Is that? Uh, and by the way, thank you so much for for sending this to me. I'm very generous of you, and and uh, I really appreciate it. The first thing I thought of when I pulled it out of the box was kind of Balvini first came to mind, and Glenn Farkless as well. Um, and two just kind of ubiquitous, very classic uh, Scotch whiskeys. And so the nod from a creative perspective on your labeling to those two brands is is uh, very well done and in and in excellent taste, sir. So speaking of excellent taste, <laughs> shall we uh, shall we pop it? <laughs> Let's take some tastes. Here, I'll uh, get mine going, too. So what is the, if you were to put an H statement on this? Um, yeah, that always gets a little complex because of, uh, of the, of the fact that it's that Solera vat that I yeah. talked about that we that we never um, that we never empty. But uh, the range that we usually go is that uh, any barrel that we add to that Solera will be between four and six years old. Almost almost never younger or older than that. Okay, and that's I remember you saying that, and that's why I asked because the color on this is very light for what you would expect from a four to six year old whiskey of any style in America. Um, and that, that's very true. Um, and one one contributing factor to that um, is that uh, pretty early on in that, that process, we transferred over to finishing casks that a lot of times have been used. So there's going to be uh, a lot gotcha. less uh, char influence in there, and therefore it's going to pick up a lot less color from them. And uh, um, on that note, we don't do we don't do any uh, caramel coloring or anything like that. So this is uh, this the color components from this come straight from the barrel. So I want to kind of do this. I don't want to. Uh, first of all, I, I read something the other day on Instagram. There's some dude that that I follow, and he had these tasting notes, and I tried to find it because I actually wanted to read the tasting notes to you, because uh, it was just such a load of bullshit, <laughs> and you can always tell. When it's because it's like it's it's the flavors of the Amazon basin, and you can taste the llamas and the dung heaps of. It's like no, dude. It's like and it, it was like hints of tropical fruit baked on the top of a volcano. It's like really, come on, man. Um, yeah, you know, um, the tasting notes are always kind of a I'm a difficult subject. Some people are truly very very good at it like uh our winemaker is a guy named kent falker uh who does a great job in in, in our wine but uh, he also has uh probably the greatest skill set in our company when it comes to tasting something and actually um describing the notes that he's picking up he's very talented at that uh, far more talented than i am and uh so like there's people like him who are very good and then there's people who are not very good at it who try to overcompensate by just just rambling and saying things like you just you just mentioned that just couldn't possibly even make any sense so like, yeah. Um, yeah it's a it's a, it's it's a weird subject it's not um it, it to be honest it's not my favorite part of uh the industry i i do think it's cool to try a whiskey and and try to describe what you're picking up on um but i also don't really think that there's right answers or wrong answers in the sense that, you know, everyone's probably gonna experience something slightly differently. And the way that you 
the notes that you pick up might be slightly different than the notes that I pick up. And some people will try to, you know, say that you're right or wrong on that subject. And I, I've always thought that that's kind of silly. Well, I mean, everybody's got a different palate. Uh, so everybody's going to smell yep. and taste things a little bit differently. They're going to pick up on different things. Like, for example, I know I've got a good friend of mine who works at New Belgium. And uh, what she was telling me is one of the things they do at New Belgium is whenever anybody gets hired, they go through tasting basically and their palate is kind of mapped and so they find out who has palate preferences for certain flavor profiles and who are super tasters of of specific things so like for example if they're doing uh i mean not that you know not that they would do like a kettle sour but but as an example like if they were doing a kettle sour and they wanted to find out uh, whether or not there was like too much butyric acid in it uh, they would go to their tasting panel who is super tasters for, for yeah. butyric acid and say hey what do you think and if they like it like okay we're good to go and so you know I think from a general perspective there's efficacy in that um, I always tend to look for initially balance I don't, I don't, when I first nose a whiskey, mm-hmm. I'm not going, okay, what, what's the first thing that jumps out? Am I smelling fruit? Am I smelling grain? Am I smelling grass? It's, it's more how well balanced is it to the point where like subconsciously, I don't want anything to really jump out at me. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I kind of want to search for it a little bit because to me that that's kind of the thing I love about a, a well-made and a balanced single malt is the exploration of the spirit. And if something jumps out, it's either off balanced to me, it's either off balanced or it's just sort of an off flavor. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And that's the thing. So I will go ahead and say like right out of the gate, uh, and this has changed, this is evolving a little bit. Kind of the joke with me is that I'll, I'll sit there and nose a whiskey for a half an hour and then I'll drink it in like five minutes. <laughs> And I'm abs- it, it will absolutely a freshly opened bottle will absolutely change for the first few minutes after you pop it. So um, I, I totally get that. But yeah, uh, just from a general perspective, without sounding like a douche, uh, <laughs> I definitely getting the the fruit forward notes of it. Uh, kind of some like nectarine, peach, some stone fruit, maybe a little bit of berry, uh, some apple. Definitely very fruit forward. Um, absolutely. And the grain is is absolutely, I mean, it's very grain forward as well as you would expect it to be. But yeah, very well balanced nose. A little bit kind of a, a, a floral sort of perfume to it. Yeah. Like lilacs were gathered in the Chilean highlands and then, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> You're pretty good at it, though. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I thought about doing that. Just just coming, like, buying a bottle and not saying what it is and just doing, like, sort of an asshole, uh, like, flavor profiling of it and just writing yeah. out paragraphs and descriptions of flavor notes and just seeing what the reaction is. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be kind of fun um, to create almost like a an alter ego character and every now and then, you know, you... You, you do exactly that with the whiskey. That'd be funny. Oh, man. So the palate and the nose, man, it's crazy how, how like, the similarities mm-hmm. are there, but then it just presents completely differently on the palate. Yeah. And I lo- like the, the cinnamon and the spice, the spice notes really come through on the finish, but not aggressively. It's more like just... Here we are. Yeah, and um, now we're gone. Um, absolutely, and and um, and I'll, I'll get into this a little bit because I want you to 
keep doing this, but uh, it's fun when, and this product in particular, when people uh, taste it and they kind of do notes like you're doing, it's fun uh, from my perspective because I can actually, I can think, wow, I know exactly which barrels I added to the Solera Vat that, that contributed that specific flavor profile. I mean, I, I can tell you some of that in a second here. I don't want to um, put thoughts in your head when people are doing tastings and, and coming up with notes. I always like to kind of keep a, a blank slate, but it's like I said, it's always fun from my perspective. Oh, that's cool. And see, I love, I love when you when you get and like some there are some scotches that are great examples of this like uh, some of your isla whiskeys you'll mm-hmm. pour it and it's a very light straw color and you're like mm-hmm. oh this is going to be a nice cute approachable whiskey and then you sip it and it just punches you in the face <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it's it's so interesting to me how subconsciously mm-hmm. we see and we taste um sort of at the same time it's like we almost taste with our eyes until you actually do it and you're like whoa i did not expect that <laughs> absolutely and this thing I love about this is that it's you know it's a very light, um, beautiful uh, colored colored whiskey, very complex. Um, uh, great complexity on there. Yeah. Um. And, and on that note, so um, uh, when our our owner, uh, who who is my dad, Jeff Quint, um, it's always people always call me out on do you call him dad or Jeff? So it's always it's always a difficulty. But um, Jeff, he uh. What, what he really wanted this flavor profile to be, um, you know, he kind of called the shot on, on what he wanted the flavor to be, and we were tasked with going out and creating it. Um, he wanted it to be both rich and complex. Um, and so hopefully that's what you're getting. I know you you uh, just mentioned complexity there, which is great. Um, but we were also going for a, a, a pretty rich flavor profile, if, if you will. And um, one way that we tried to accomplish that is by um, throwing in some ex sherry cask finish single malt into the Solera vet. We felt that that mm-hmm. might, uh, that might add just a, a tad of spice in there um, and, and kind of richen it up. Um, so, you know, you get a lot of complexity from those other barrels that we had in there too, but uh, an extra touch of sherry is uh, what we feel like kind of did the, the the final added element in order to make it the rich whiskey that it is. And, and on that note, it's kind of a funny story. Um, so a- adding those, the sherry cask that I just referred to, adding that to the Solera was one of the last things that we did to this whiskey before we bottled it. And and um, what, what I'm actually having today is the whiskey pre-adding those sherry casks because uh, I did not <laughs> properly forecast the amount of bottles that I would need. And we, <laughs> we sent a few out, uh, obviously one to yourself and a few to other people. And uh, I did not save one for myself. So the sample that I have is from the Solera vat before we added those sherry casks. And so it, it is it is slightly different. Um, and it's definitely missing that sherry influence that uh, you might be experiencing. And when did you bottle this? Uh, like uh, it, it would have been, uh, I think eight days ago. Now we bottled it. I just love. I love watching the legs form too on it. To me, yeah, single malt to me is something um, that I I love to just kind of like you're doing right now. I love to just sit and admire it. Um, you know, kind of shake it around, stare at it. Um, l- like you mentioned earlier, a, a lot of nosing. Uh, if I'm gonna do. Like if I'm going to sit down and, and do some writing or journaling or whatever, I like to have a little single malt with me as opposed to any other type of whiskey because I feel like it kind of wakes up my creative side. Um, there's just something a little bit more beautiful about it, in my opinion, than than other varieties of whiskey. So, all right, I'm going to I'm going to take a, a totally different path uh, here. I'm going to veer off and okay. I'm going to get esoteric and, and without sounding too blunt, 
Why do you care about American single malt? Why is it important? Um, yeah, yeah. So a great question. And I, I really appreciate you asking that. Um, to me, American single malt represents one of the greatest opportunities for craft distilleries to matter and grow. Um, I... I to, to me, one of the best things that could happen in the world of whiskey, especially here in America, is to see a lot more players in the game. It's been traditionally dominated uh, by a lot of the same old distilleries for over 100 years now. Um, and and I, I don't mean to knock on them at all because they've done a great job and they, they produce great whiskeys. Uh, but I, I like variants and varieties and options. And um, that's what these craft distilleries represent to me is a lot more to explore and a lot more options. And since the world of single malt is not being explored in the United States by those bigger distilleries that are more established. It leaves the door wide open for craft distilleries to be relevant. And um, in, in the United States, about only about 4% of craft, or sorry, only about 4% of spirits consumed in the United States are craft spirits. And something that I, I really want to be a part of is helping that number grow. I want to grow our, our slice of the pie as craft spirit producers uh, to be much larger than that. And single malt to me represents the perfect opportunity to do that because there's no ceiling on how far we can take it because of the lack of uh, established competition. And then once again, um, I I want to compete in categories that uh, embrace artistic ability and creative vision. And uh, I, I already stated earlier how I believe that uh, single malt kind of represents that opportunity. There's just a lot more uh, ability to to truly craft specific flavors in the world of single malt than there is in, in other whiskeys. So to me, that's that's why single malt matters and why I'm so excited about the opportunity that American single malt whiskey brings. And I, I love the fact that you just said single malt matters. <laughs> I, I, and it wasn't even scripted and you didn't realize you did it. And I that's awesome. <laughs> That was on the fly, man. That was for you on the fly. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So what, what do you see the future looking like for the category? And and is that dependent or contingent on anything? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly is. Um, what, um, what I want to see, and in my opinion, this... What will bring this is um, stronger coalitions like the the American Craft Spirits Association, which I said I'm running for the board on. Um, I firmly believe that if we continue to strengthen that and and grow it, um, and as craft producers we continue to form more of an alliance versus competing with each other, um, I think that that will represent a great opportunity for us to all grow our market share, and then once again we'll um, bring more more options and varieties of of spirits to the to the shelves for consumers to explore. So anyway, what, I, what I'm hoping we will see is exactly that. And I think what that will lead to um, is almost more like the world of wine. People, people always want to compare uh, craft whiskey to craft beer. And I, I totally get that in a way, but craft beer to craft wine is craft beer to just wine in general is kind of what I want to see where um, you walk into a retail store and it's like, yeah, um, this is our red wines from California section. This is our, our wines from, you know, New Zealand section. This is our wines from upstate New York. I would really like to see 
uh, the world of whiskey be exactly that, where, yeah, uh, scotch is absolutely relevant, Japanese is relevant, Irish is relevant, but also in the United States, you've got regions now. Um, you know, this is this is clearly a West Coast single malt. Uh, this is clearly a bourbon from the Midwest. Uh, you know, th- this has uh, notes l- like it comes from upstate New York, and that's exactly what I want to come out of this. And once again, I feel like that can be done by building stronger alliances and coalitions like the American Craft Spirits Association um, so that we grow our piece of pie before we all start competing with each other. Right now, what we need to be focused on in order to bring all that change is to uh, slowly take market share from the mass producers that have, that have been here for so long and grow the uh, the craft share. What keeps you awake at night? <laughs> um, uh, I'd say specific a lot of things right now. Um, the, the world's kind of in a crazy spot, but um, specifically in the world of whiskey, um, distribution uh the biggest distributors in this country are uh, consistently consolidating um they're either merging or buying each other out and one issue that that presents to craft distillers like myself is that it makes it a lot harder to find your way to a retail shelf or to a bar shelf um if if there's you know if there's a thousand different distributors in the united states it's a lot easier to use one of those to navigate through the system and end up from point A to point B. If there's one or two distributors in the United States, that becomes very, very problematic because the biggest players in the industry can kind of jam up those two different pipelines. They can uh, they can incentivize their distributors more than the craft spirits producers can because they have a lot more money, obviously, and they can really prevent uh, these smaller companies from making a splash or, or breaking through or whatever you want to call it. So that that's probably what keeps me up at night the most is just the consolidation of distributors and uh, the, the disadvantage that that puts craft distilleries in. And something that I've touched on uh, with a couple of different people, um, Gabe Toth uh, out of uh, Colorado from the family Jones also talked with Amanda and Greg at Virginia distillery company about this, uh, FET and the, the, uh, the craft <laughs> beverage modernization tax reform act. How important is that to you guys? And, uh, it's a loaded question. I know it is. I, I always try <laughs> yeah. to, this is something that I need to hammer. I, I really need to hammer yeah. home because it is the single greatest challenge. I think facing craft <laughs> distillers yeah. in this country right now. And, um, what's your perspective on it? I'd love to hear, <laughs> um, hear that so we can, we can provide yeah. more context. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I appreciate the opportunity um, to even speak on it because like, like you said, it, it, it is, you know, I just mentioned, uh, distribution uh, being an issue. This is, is far more important at this point in time. Um, so, you know, the, the fact that, that we're currently in a temporary reduction um, has done so many great, great things for not only our business, but the industry as a whole. Um, you know, I'll, I'll speak for our business because I obviously am a little bit more familiar with it than, than anyone else's, but um, for us, that reduction has allowed us to add a number of employees, uh, whether it's to the uh, production side of business or to sales marketing. Um, we added a financial controller. You know, it, it's allowed us to put a lot more pieces in place that add to our structure and allow us to build off of. And so, um, it, it has it has been uh, imperative to the success of our business. And um, you know, I, I'd say maybe more so than than anything else what it has done for us is it has allowed us to put more money in our marketing pot um and you know we have had more money 
that we're able to advertise with, uh, to do social media targeting with. We've had more money that we can uh, invest in doing events and things like that, all because we have such a significant reduction in that tax. If that goes up, um, it obviously becomes a lot harder for us to get our name out there because uh, we're going to pay a lot more in taxes and we'll have a lot less money to utilize on things like advertising and promotion. So, um, yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's very important that 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 stays. Um, if if we don't get a, a permanent reduction put in place, I think it, it could certainly lead to um a reduction in the amount of distilleries that there are in the United States, which if you, if you haven't caught on from what I've been saying this whole time, that's the exact opposite of what I want. I want to see as many distilleries open up as possible because that creates a lot of, a lot of options, and a lot of variety out there. So we have to find a way to, to uh, get this permanent reduction put in place in order for really the craft spirits thing to be sustainable long-term. So I'm, I'm really hoping that that's what happens. So what's on the horizon for you guys uh what do you have coming up that you're excited about and what can people look forward to uh coming coming from you um yeah a a lot of things um you know right now it's it's uh our quintessential american single malt whiskey that we've we've talked about already and that uh we are just we haven't even officially released it yet we've only bottled it so um our quintessential american single malt whiskey is what we're all about right now um on that note i mean you know we're we're a craft distillery so i mean we like to uh we obviously like to have our our flagships like our Iowa bourbon in place but we also like to do something new so we're always I mean, you know we're always kind of tinkering around with new creative ideas and, and doing some some holiday releases and stuff like that um, on July 4th we're gonna release our bottled and bond bourbon and uh, for that one uh, both me and our, our general manager slash vice president Jamie Siefkin um, the two of us together we always taste through our our bourbon supply and pick out our bottled and bond together. So uh, we found uh, six different barrels that are going to create our bottled and bond for this year. And I, I have been promising people that as far as bourbon goes, it's going to be the best bourbon we put out yet. Um, I'm, I'm so pumped about this specific release. So, you know, that that's an annual release that we do. And um, then, yeah, I mean, we, we've got some fun stuff coming up down the road. Uh, obviously, staying focused on single malt, we, we've already talked about our quintessential, but, um, and, and not to get too far ahead of myself and, and over tease because I don't want to get in trouble, but um, we will also eventually have um, a, a special release on that side of things, uh, kind of like a, a distiller series where... <clears throat> Uh, me along with the, our our other uh, production team will determine basically a specific batch of single malt or a style of single malt that we want to produce once a year and we'll release that all in one big lot. So we're doing some fun stuff. Uh, we've got a lot in the pipeline, uh, but right now we are kind of heads down on this quintessential American single malt. Well, definitely stay in touch with me. Let me know whenever you've got an update or anything I can share. Uh, Definitely happy to push that out for you. And uh, of course, everything that we've been talking about will be uh, in the show notes for this episode, links to you guys. And um, uh, aside from that, tell tell folks where they can find you if they want more information, um, your your social feeds, all that fun stuff. Um, Yeah, yeah. And so um, obviously you can learn more about us on our website, uh, cedarridgewhiskey.com. 
wine.com. If you have any interest in learning more about our wine, by the way, uh, crwine.com. And you can obviously navigate back and forth uh, from page to page um, if, if you want to. But uh, we're uh, present on basically any form of social media. Uh, Cedar Ridge, Iowa is what we usually go by on, I, I think, Instagram, Facebook, all that jazz. Um, if, if you want to get kind of a behind-the-scenes view of, of what we're doing at Cedar Ridge, uh, specifically focusing on production, I do have my own Instagram page that, that focuses on just that. So you can look me up at murphy.quint. Like I said, I'm always just taking kind of fun shots of our, our production, um, our barrel sheds, uh, our property, that we have a lot going on at Cedar Ridge that it, we have so much going on at Cedar Ridge that it's kind of hard to even promote it all at the same time. So I, I tried to give a kind of a behind the scenes perspective on my own Instagram account. So yeah, get out there and uh, check some of our stuff out. You can find it, um, you know, it, it's available for online purchase all over the country right now through different portals, um, you know, and then um, our distribution right now is spotty state by state, but you can you can certainly find us if you're looking for us. So get out there and try our whiskeys. Um, it, in addition to that, they'll make sure you're you're trying other whiskeys uh, especially in the single malt category there's so many cool american single malt whiskeys coming out right now there's so many different styles to explore so get out there and check it out murphy quint from cedar ridge thank you so much for your time i appreciate it and really looking forward to uh to everything you've got coming up hey thanks a lot for having me this was a blast Thanks again so much to Murphy Quint for sitting down with me this week to talk about his family's distillery and very aptly named Quint Essential Signature Blend. And by the way, the naming of that expression was very much not an accident. And you know what? It's a solid bottle, so I definitely recommend it if you can get your hands on one. Thanks so much again for listening. And if you like what I'm doing here on Single Malt Matters, please subscribe to the podcast and head over to your favorite listening platform to leave a review. Michael Kirkpatrick is the podcast CMO, that's Chief Musical Officer, and he has a website of his own where you can listen to some more of his stuff, so head over to michaelkirkpatrickmusic.com and check him out. You can find show notes to this and every previous episode at asmwpodcast.com, which is also where you can go to send questions or feedback and sign up for the Single Malt Matters newsletter. And of course, you can always email me directly at matt at asmwpodcast.com. Until next time. <laughs>